and welcome to the 4.0 Solutions Industry 4.0 Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds, which, by the way, I never introduce, I never do my name. Somebody recommend, uh, pointed that out the other day. They're like, hey, you never say who you are. Um, uh, this is a pre-recorded podcast, um, as remember. Um, I am on sabbatical for the month of July, and today's podcast is for July 5th, 2022. I'm the lone host this week. We'll have Brendan Riley next week uh, because of scheduling conflicts. Um, this podcast will be done just by me. Um, and I'm going to try and do it in 40 minutes. Let's see how those of you who are like watching on a podcast or listening on a podcast app or whatever, or you're, you're not doing it during the live stream at noon, Central on Tuesdays. You already know how long it is. I don't know at this point while I'm recording how long it's going to be, but it's, I'm going to try and do it in 40 minutes. Uh, let's see how that plays out. Um, I hope everyone had a, uh, for those of you in the United States, I hope you had a uh, safe, happy, and relaxing uh, Independence Day or Fourth of July weekend. Um, Yesterday, I spent some time with my kids. So we do did nearly all of our celebrating over the weekend um, on Saturday and Sunday. And then yesterday, we spent most of the day at home. We watched a couple of uh, <clears throat> um, movies centered around um, the in Independence Day or, or um, attributes or themes of Independence Day or the 4th of July. I, myself, am a, an incredibly proud American I, you know, I believe we've created the greatest system of government and economy and society that's ever existed. Um, certainly after the industrial revolutions, um, yeah, I, I'm a big, a big believer in people, the power of people, the power of the individual. Um, and so, and I think that independence day and the 4th of July really represents all about the enablement of the individual, right? Um, so yesterday my kids and I, we watched a couple of things. We watched a documentary on, um, like extremism in the United States. And then, uh, and then we watched Independence Day last night with Will Smith <laughs> and that, that speech with the president is just, um, it was awesome. It was, it was just, you know, we made, made a point to, you know, really celebrate what Independence, Independence Day means and I hope that you guys did too you know the only the one thing I want to say is I, I had a long talk with my kids um, about two things last night and so before we get into the announcements this wasn't even listed here but I want to make sure I but I had a long talk with my kids about two things last night um, one of them was centered around you know the actual Declaration of Independence and and what what it means um, and it was really, you know, it was basically our forefathers pointing to God, <laughs> literally pointing to God and saying, here is, here are inalienable rights that are, that were given to us by God and that governments that we create here on earth are, they're separate from God. They're, they're social contracts. You know, people get together and they agree that we're going to abide by these rules and we're going to allow, you know, we're going to give consent to government to govern us. <clears throat> but the Declaration of Independence talks a lot about how 
there are things, even if we give government consent for certain things, there are things government can't take away from us. Those are our inalienable rights. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, among others. Um, I, I don't like the pursuit of happiness term, which is we also talked about. In our house, we don't talk about happiness being the point of life, um, seeking out happiness. I, don't, I prefer not to use that term. I prefer to use seeking out contentment. And the reason why is that, you know, happiness is a relative term. Um, you know, if, if you go to say Disney world, right. If you, if you ask any 12 year old kid, Hey, what would make you the happiest in the world? They might say a bunch of them might say, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to live at Disney world. Well, they are not going to be nearly as happy at Disney world after eight days as they were on day one, on day one, they're probably ecstatic. It's euphoric, right? Because happiness is relative, you know, whether I'm happy today is relative to whether I was happy yesterday, how I felt yesterday. If yesterday was a really hard day, then today, the threshold for happiness, for me feeling happy today is going to be much lower than if yesterday was a euphoric day. That's why you generally have, you feel this sense of letdown um, after you've had a really, really great day, right? Contentment is about the long haul, right? And so we talk about that, the pursuit of happiness, pursuit of contentment. But one of the other things that we talked about, I, I talked about how my story, you know, the, the story of Walker Reynolds really isn't possible in any country but the United States. And that all starts from the Declaration of Independence. You know, and I shot a video this morning in the car on the way into the office that I think will be posted on Thursday. And it's, uh, it's all about... You know, you can't afford not to be a digital company. And I talk about in that video about how Intellic integration was digital from day one before I had any employees. And I talk about the systems, digital systems that were built, integrations that were built before we had anybody. It was the, it was a, there was a digital foundation the business was built on. Um, there's no, there would have been no financial incentive for me to do that, no opportunity for me to do that were I in many countries on earth and that's an extension of you know our forefathers so I am a truly truly very very grateful proud American um and I and I hope that um you are too or if you don't live in the United States um I hope that you view the United States as that shining beacon on the hill and uh you know as opposed to um, something else, right? Um, the other thing I talked to my kids about was this, and I, and this is for the business owners out there. Okay. I, w- I was having a conversation with, uh, my brother. Um, one of my brothers, I have nine siblings. <laughs> I have three biological brothers on my dad's side. I have three biological brothers on my mom's side, and then I have three adopted siblings. So I have nine siblings altogether. And uh, in total, it's, uh, Two girls, seven, two girls, seven boys, right? There, there are eight boys, including me, and two girls. Uh, but I was talking to one of my brothers uh, on my dad's side yesterday. And he was talking about how he's, he's working for this startup and, and um, you know, they don't have any health care benefits. And, you know, and, and they're looking at trying to get health care benefits. And one of the things I talked about was from a mechanical standpoint, one of the, one of the reasons... Um, Intellic integration was able to get off the ground. That is a company where I'm going to hire professionals, people with college degrees and 
they're going to be in the service industry and they're working really long hours and they're working on really tough projects. You know, did I offer health insurance from day one? <laughs> and the answer is no. Um, I didn't. I couldn't afford that. We were cash cash business, right? So how did we do that? And the answer is we did something called a Section 105 reimbursement plan, which was bolstered by Obamacare, right? Which basically um, it, it, it gave employers the ability to allow their employees to go buy their health insurance. And then you could write a health care plan where you were just basically reimbursing them up to certain limits for their costs. So like we did it centered around if you're a, if you're a, an individual who's buying an individual health insurance plan, you are going to get up to X amount of dollars. You'll get X amount of dollars per month to help you pay for that. Right. You go handle everything. You go get the plan. You go to the healthcare exchange, whatever you do. And we will re we will give you a it acted as a reimbursement. It was tax free, but we were really just giving them the flat the flat amount. And then if you were married, you got basically double that. Right. If you were married or you, you know, had a family, you got double that. And for the first two years, our health insurance was in telecom integrations anyways, was a section one oh five reimbursement plan. And I was telling him about that. And I was saying, you know, that was a unique opportunity that it made Intellic integration. It allowed us to compete. It allowed us to even be in the market because we could do something for health insurance other than taking on the massive amount of cost of managing a plan, which we do now. Now we have traditional plans with, you know, three tiered PPO, all that jazz. That's a lot more expensive than what we were, what we could originally afford, which was, you know, and I think we were reimbursing don't quote me, but I think it was, you know, $350 for an individual per month or $500 for a couple, or maybe it was 500 and 800 or maybe 500 and a thousand, whatever it was, it was something in that neighborhood. It was hundreds of dollars. And I think maybe the top reimbursement was a thousand dollars a month, but that made us, it made us viable in the market. It, it gave, it gave me the ability to hire people. I otherwise wouldn't have been able to hire. But after a couple of years, after maybe two years, we, d we, dis we wanted to get a regular health plan with 401k and all that kind of stuff. And um, instead of 401k in the beginning, we did a pure profit sharing plan. So every year, the employees would get 15% of net profit at the, in December. They would just get a, ch a check cut to them for 15% of the net profit. And that was split evenly. So we didn't weight the bonuses. And the reason why was because the person who made the least amount of money in the company should have got, should get the biggest amount in the, the, um, the bonus structure. I've never understood the concept that if I make a million dollars a year, my bonus should be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I just never understood. That just makes no sense to me. Um, but let's say I, I have a pool of money for the bonuses and I split it evenly across everybody. The people who make the least amount of money are getting the biggest impact with the bonus, which is the way they should be structured, right? It's the way it should be structured um, for lots of reasons. You can make incentive arguments and stuff. But there were uh, one of the things I was talking about with my kids was, you know, it wasn't just having this idea, having this vision for 4.0 solution or Intellic integration having this vision for an industry Ford auto integrator, or, you know, it wasn't just about my ability to work 120 hours a week in the beginning. And, 
you know, let me, let me say this. If you're starting a company, you're building a company and you plan on working anything less than a hundred hours a week, you're going to fail. You're going to, you're going to fail you cause, cause you're not competing against the status quo. You're competing against the other startups and people in startups go in prepared to work a hundred hours. <laughs> I mean, you have to, in order to get off the ground, you have to be able to do more work. You know, you have to be able to do more work in, uh, with the same allotted hours given to you. And the best way to do that is to just work more hours. Um, when I was growing up, discipline, respect, hard work were the three pillars of our family. And when my parents, when we defined what those things were, right? Discipline is the ability to do what you want, what you have to do when you don't want to do it, right? You have the ability to get you, to force yourself, compel yourself to do what you have to do when you don't want to do it, right? If you can't get past discipline, focus on discipline. If you're not a person who can get yourself to do what you have to do when you don't want to do it, don't even move on to the next pillar. <laughs> Teach yourself discipline. You know, you have to figure out a way to force yourself to do what you have to do when you don't want to do it. So respect is understanding, um, you know, institutions and the people who came before you. Um, you know, most of the new employees who come here, right, all these people that we've added, they've, they come to our, one of my companies now after these companies are incredibly successful. Right. So they haven't been here for all the sacrifices. So we, but we have employees here who were here in the sacrifices. In fact, uh, you know, our chief experience officer, John McLeod, he was, he, John was with us when we were in an office right next to a garage. And I, one of the things you might hear me all the time saying here in our offices, I'll say, you know, John helped build this company. He's going nowhere. Right. John, John helped make this happen. He's going nowhere, right? Unless he just starts sleeping on his office floor or something. And then, but res that's respecting the contribution. That's re that's respecting the institution, which is our organization, and John's contribution to even making this happen, right? So respect is that second piece. If you can't respect institutions, if you can't respect those who came before you, then you need to focus on that. Once you're, you have discipline, and then now you move on to respect. And then hard work is really simple. It's the ability to do more in the same amount of time as another person does. So if I've only got, if I've got 168 hours in a week, that's how much I'm allotted. And I got to split up eating, showering, sleeping, and work, and then recreation and fitness and all that stuff. Hard work is the ability from, is my ability to get more out of that 168 hours than the next guy or the next gal. Okay. So I talk to my kids about, yeah, I, I, I'm disciplined. I have respect for institutions and I can work hard. Okay. I've got those three things, but were it not for these other external factors, things like the section 105 reimbursement plan existing or the declaration of independence being written, you know, in 1776, then I don't have an opportunity to do this. Right. And so we, we had a long conversation about that, that kind of stuff yesterday. And I, I had weighed whether or not to even talk about this stuff on the podcast. But I think, you know, one of the things that like Independence Day and Christmas and Easter and Memorial Day and Veterans Day and um, Labor Day, what a lot of these holidays mean to me, it's a moment 
to stop, to, to not just stop and have a barbecue, but to stop and think about why it is we are where we are. You know, all the, you know, a million Americans, one million Americans have given their life in defense of American values and freedom since our com- our country was, was, uh, created, right? A million Americans have died defending the principles of freedom, right? Um, far, many, many more have suffered injury and casualties and that kind of, were casualties, but a million died, right? And our, some of these holidays are about us saying, holy, thinking about that. People who have given their lives in defense of principles that make all the stuff we talk about in this podcast every week even possible. Um, all right, with that, let's move on to the announcements. Just real quick rem- reminder, um, I, a, a couple of you guys have reached out saying that you're going to meet us at the Shaw Classic on August 13th and 14th. Um, we are sponsoring the deadlift. We're going to be using our vision system during the deadlift. Um, and it, I, I'm fairly certain that it's going to be called the Intellic Integration 4.0 Solutions Deadlift. It might just be the Intellic Integration Deadlift at the Shaw Classic August 13th and 14th. I don't know which day the actual deadlift is. My guess is it's probably on the 13th, generally in strongman competition. The deadlift is one of the early events. Um, Actually, oftentimes it's the first event. So uh, most likely it's going to be August 13th. Um, You should see like on Brian Shaw and Shaw Strengths um, Instagram and all that stuff, they should be putting that stuff. You should see announcements with our, our stuff on there then. Um, I'm going to skip over all the other announcements, and I'm just going to get directly into the questions, okay? Um, I, I'm going to start with a, a comment that came through. So today, this week, we're going to go over questions and comments, and I'm going to talk about a couple of different um, concepts. I'm going to answer Steve Manos's question from last week's podcast with J.P. Manos, which I thought was awesome. I want to appreciate, again, give big thanks to J.P. for coming on. But uh, MK Ultra, which... <laughs> I love the tag tagline, but uh, MK Ultra a couple of days ago on the Industry 4.0 versus Industry 3.0 industrial application video. That's where I compared an Industry 3.0 implementation that we did with an Industry 4.0 implementation. Um, that was when we used that that light board uh, right before COVID. Um, MK Ultra wrote a comment on that video the other day, which was, "I'm currently writing a Sparkplug B client edge of network node in Python, and it's a lot of fun." Sparkplug B on MQTT has limitless applications, and that's exciting. Your channel or this channel has been a godsend and has skyrocketed my knowledge in the month or so I've been watching. So a huge thank you for putting this content out there. MKUltra, thank you for that. I, what I want to say is we, we get a lot of comments like that. I'll get a lot of emails, a lot of Discord DMs, a lot of LinkedIn DMs centered around. Thank you very much for the content. I've learned so much in the last month. It's completely transformed you know, my life, my career, the, the way that we're solving problems in my organization. And th- those comments, they, they mean a lot because this is, uh, this is a lot of work. I mean, I love doing it. Um, but I mean, we, we, I, I spend a lot of money making this happen. Um, you know, I have four, um, I have four em- people who are employed full time, who are centered around, doing nothing but helping us get our message out. So the, you know, IIoT.university where we do mastermind and mentorship, 
the YouTube channel, our LinkedIn posts. I mean, there are, you know, myself included, there are five people who work. This is their job. This is what we do. And there's a lot of work that goes into to making this happen. Um, and it means a lot when you guys, when we get those types of comments. Um, so thank you, MK Ultra. Uh, Steve Manos, um, on the last week's podcast, he asked a really good question, and I want to go ahead and answer that today. This is a technical response. So he said, I'd like to get y'all's thoughts on something discussed in this podcast. Provided the assumptions that sensor tech is being pushed further down the stack, PubSub is the way forward and how the unified namespace is applying context up the stack. It seems to me that things like conditioning, transforming, contextualization, etc., at the edge is not scalable and not really a viable path forward with 4.0. So you remember JP and I were talking about data modeling specifically around um, profiles inside of edge of network devices, things like PLCs, so add-on instructions, user-defined data types, model those types of models. And what Steve is saying, it seems to me that it's not scalable, really viable. So how do you reconcile that from a data model standpoint? Okay. In other words, how does the data instance at the sensor level keep pace with the evolving data needs in the stack so that conditioning, ETL, et cetera, is no longer required at the edge? All right, great question. It's a two-part answer. So one of the things that I, I generally have to illustrate for our clients when we're working with them and when we're architecting their solutions is this. You, digital transformation really happens. There's two strategies, or there's one strategy, but there are two approaches, two phases in digital transformation as it relates to just the technology. So number one, you have to have a approach that helps you integrate legacy equipment. So you have all the stuff that's in your plant. You, you want to leave no data behind, right? It doesn't mean that you're not going to leave some data behind, but the goal has to be to leave no data behind. Um, you have to have a strategy or a, uh, a, a, um, a strategy for legacy equipment, okay? Legacy PLCs that don't support IoT protocols, right? And then you, and then you have a strategy for shipping equipment IoT ready. That is the stuff I'm going to buy in the future when I'm specking a piece of equipment for the OEM. The stuff that's going to come in the future is going to ship with no integration needed whatsoever. Okay. There is a third step in there, and that is adding context to data. So the, the, the new equipment, the stuff that's coming in the future, you, you give your OEMs minimum technical requirements, MTRs, and those minimum technical requirements say your equipment has to support this protocol, this because this is the protocol we have. You have to organize, you have to model the data, all the data, so no data left behind. You have to model all the data on the edge using this semantic hierarchy, generally ISA 95. Here are some examples of models that we use. Here is the model for a pump. Here is the model for a motor, right? And then your machine builder is going to ship the equipment. They're going to, you're going to do a functional acceptance test and a site acceptance test just centered around functionality, right? Does it check off all the boxes in your FAT? And then at the very end, you're going to tell them to plug 
you're going to give them an, you know, an IP address and a username and a password, right? And then you're going to give them a group no, a group ID, node ID, device ID for the Sparkplug B. And then you're going to say, point to that infrastructure, turn the switch on, and the data starts streaming. The With a legacy piece of equipment, you have to do all that from scratch. So are you going to go to every single p machine and do all your modeling on the edge? Or are you going to try and put something between the machine and your infrastructure to get it modeled? The way that we generally do that is we do it really, you know, a combination of three solutions. We'll use KEP server to talk to equipment over its native protocol. Then we'll use HiByte to talk to Kepware and do all the modeling. And HiByte will stream the data in the IIoT format into the infrastructure. Another way we do it is without using HiByte, we put it goes KEP server to legacy device, ignition to KEP server, all the modeling and the conversion into the IoT protocol is done in ignition. You can also do this in factory studio frameworks, but ignition is the one we do it the most with. You can also do this in Cogent's Data Hub. There's, there's many tools out there. I'm just mentioning the ones that we generally use all the time. HiByte is best suited for you know, talking to your OPC infrastructure and converting into your IoT protocol. You, in, yeah, that is for streaming to your unified namespace. Okay, so the answer to Steve's question is, is that yes, it is, it is not, it's not scalable to go and manage all of your data modeling for legacy equipment at the edge, okay? But remember why it is you're modeling to begin with, okay? You're, what you're trying to do is take unlike data and turn it into like data so that you don't have to have an analysis algorithm for every unique type of sensor, or you don't have to have an analysis algorithm for each piece of equipment when you're trying to calculate OEE. What you're trying to do is format the unlike data for common consumption into an algorithm that can convert that data into information so that you can act on it, right? Well, we do it multiple ways so that, in, in, including at the unified namespace itself, where I may bring in the completely raw, unlike data in one place in the namespace, and then reference it from the modeled location in the namespace, where I'm referencing the individual raw events, but I'm, but I'm referencing them from a, a common structure. So you think of it as a, an indirect reference, where I'm saying um, this, this parameter here is getting its raw value from this unordered data that comes directly from the edge over here in the unified namespace. It's a reference to a location in the namespace that just has completely unordered data. Okay, we do that all the time. To answer your question, Steve, though, yes, it is, it is not scalable to manage m all modeling and transformation of data on the edge. But long term, you do want the raw structure of, of machine events to be an exact replica of, of the reality on the, on the floor in that machine. So if I add a parameter, a tag, um, um, an event in a machine, I do want that to show up in my namespace, okay? And the other thing I wanna talk about ETL, because I get this ETL question a lot. 
So for those of you who don't know uh, ETL, ETL is extract, transform, load, right? The most common example, a, a really good for the layperson, a really good example would be, imagine I have a bunch of databases in my business and if I, and I, and what I want to do is I want to create a common application, um, from all the data that's in all those completely disparate databases. And remember when I build applications, there's really three components to an application in general. Component number one is the backend. That's the database, the underlying data store for the data that's going to be in my application. Then there's an API. And then there's a UI. The UI talks to the API to get the stuff out of that common database. ETL is say I want to make that common application, but I want to use data that's in a bunch of databases all across my business. An example of an ETL implementation would be extracting the data from those uncommon databases, transforming it into the structure of my underlying data model, and then loading it into that underlying data, underlying data model so that my application could consume it, the UI could consume it through the API. A really common ETL example is that. The customer has all these disparate databases, you know, maybe they've got a quality database here, they've got a production database there, and it's, and it's not structured to any standard. So the, the, the tables, the entities that are created were just, they came out of somebody's head, right? And it's just like in, you know, database administration, especially for those who are doing database development and architecture, it's, just, it's the same concept as if you give the same functional specification to 10 different PLC programmers, you're going to get 10 completely different PLC programs that do the same thing. They do the same functions. But under the hood, the raw stuff, the way it's structured, will all look different. It's the same thing in databases, right? A DB, you give the same same um, functional specification to 10 different DBAs, they're going to give you 10 completely different entity structures. Now, they may be some similarities, but they're going to be different. ETL is the concept of a good example of ETL. There, and ETL means many other things, not just related to databases. But a really common implementation is extracting data from existing unordered databases, transforming it into a common structure, and then loading it into a common data base where your application is only going to consume the data from okay and i get that question all the time i plan on shooting a you know talking about etl and mastermind and mentorship more in the future but um you know uh i wanted to make sure i touch on it now all right next comment so this is we sh we did a we published a short um and th this is a really important discussion here we published a short the other day which was um you know, Elon Musk's favorite question to ask people in job interviews. And I think it actually came from one of our podcasts. It was a, it's a 60 second short, but it's from, it's from the podcast. And there was this guy, Jeremiah Schultz, who commented on the, um, the video. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just read the whole thread. I, it's, there's three comments there. It's him commenting, then me, and then he has a response. And then I'm going to respond to him, respond to his final one. So, Jeremiah Schultz said, so cool. So why is Tesla build quality and quality control on par with Zestava? Okay. And you know, I get this a lot. I, I hear about the build quality of Tesla's all the time. That for some, for some reason, um, you know, 
Tesla haters are going to point out, they, they'll ask the question about build quality, okay? And I'm not debating whether there have been build issues with the Teslas. What I would say is, is that the build issues are not important in, from my perspective. They're inconsequential. They're cosmetic in general. Okay, that's not, that's not, that doesn't go to the quality of, I mean, I would assume, I think for most people, the quality we care about is whether or not the car is going to fall apart while I'm driving down the road. I mean, I, I don't think it has to do whether or not there's a scratch on the outside of a, a lens or this door is just slightly misaligned or whatever that is. I'm not, as long as the door doesn't leak, what do I care? I don't give a shit, right? Um, the question I've always followed up with, with that kind of question, when someone brings up the build quality, I, I'm assuming that the assumption there is Tesla is not a great company because their car, their build quality is poor. I would converse and say, no, they're, a, they're a great company because in they have, they produce better quality cars today than Ford did eight years after they started manufacturing cars or General Motors or Chevy or Chrysler. The, the argument is, is that Tesla, Tesla is not a car manufacturer. They're a data company who manufactures cars, right? So I want to, and I want to drive this point home. So this Jeremiah Schultz guy said, cool. So why is Tesla build quality and quality control on par with Zestava? It's not. Okay. I'm going to read an article here from EV to prove that out. But so my response was I've owned two Teslas, both, both purchased in the last year. They're the greatest vehicles I've ever owned. The real question people should be asking, why is it that these purported quality issues haven't affected sales or satisfaction? The answer, because Tesla makes products that get better after you buy them. Thanks for the comment. And this is a really important distinction. I've said this many times, and I'm going to say it again, okay? And then I'm going to read Jeremiah's response here in a second. This is a really important distinction. Tesla does not manu they're not a car manufacturer. They're a data company. And we are trying to teach manufacturers to become data companies. Where rather than if I, you know, if I make flexible packaging, you have to see yourself as not as a uh, a manufacturer of flexible packaging. But you need to see yourself as a data company who does flexible packaging. Okay? And there's a whole host of reasons. Digital supply chain is a big piece of it. But another big piece of it is contract manufacturing in the future is another big component. So many manufacturers who, are, who have manufacturing infrastructure who are not seeing themselves as data companies, that is the acquisition of manufacturing information, so I can become a better manufacturer no matter what I'm manufacturing. If you're not consuming that data, turning it into information to make yourself a better manufacturer, no matter what it is you produce, when the economy switches to contract manufacturing, which it will, will more that is the number of people who manufacture basically anything generically and they're contracting the actual manufacturing of goods, that's, that market continues to grow every year and it's going to continue to grow. And specialized manufacturers will become a smaller and smaller part of the market. They're never going to go away. They're not going to disappear. But they're going to become a smaller part of the market. And if I'm a manufacturer, I definitely want to be looking at opportunities to be a contract manufacturer. And I can't do that if I don't become a data company first. And Elon Musk talks about this with Tesla. He says, 
you know, the, they, they have improved manufacturing at the speed of light exponentially because they're a data company. You know, and, and here's a really good example. Tesla improves, if you look at the two cars that I bought, I bought a Model 3 last fall, and then I, and then I immediately ordered a Model S, and I used the Model 3 and then traded it in for the Model S when the Model S came in. So I bought, I've had two brand new Teslas in the last nine months. I got the Model S, I think, in January, February this year, and I got the Model 3 in, whatever, October of last year. They're the two best cars I've ever owned. I personally had no build quality issues. I didn't see my door seemed lined up and all that jazz. But what's important to note is those cars changed after I bought them. Um, my battery life went up. You know, I got more miles out of my ride, out of my battery life than I did when I first started because that's because Tesla was optimizing that, making it better. I got more features. I got uh, the turn signal cameras, which didn't exist in the beginning. Now, when I turn a turn signal on, my blind spot cameras come on if I want them to. I was able to add full self-driving and the summon feature after the fact. I mean, there's countless, you know, even the UI, uh, even the map, the, the map has gotten better. That is, navigation has gotten better at optimizing my travel and not having me get off on an off, off ramp and then back on an on ramp. They've gotten much better at keeping me on the highway I'm going to stay on, right? The car has gotten better over time and you know it's like driving in a rocket like the experience is completely different i mean these are the by far not even close the greatest cars i've ever owned so when someone points out why does the build quality and quality control suck well the question you really need to be asking is why is it people don't seem to care about that so it's either the quality issues aren't as big a problem as you're saying they are or they're focused on other things. I think it's a combination of both, okay? But I think a big piece is that the product gets better after you buy them. So Jeremiah responded, oh, I wanna go one other piece. If you look at the way, so Ford is really making a huge push in EVs, GM is making a big push in EVs, right? Why is it I'm so hard on Ford and General Motors? And the answer is this, Ford and General Motors they and, and, and other companies out there, they haven't they haven't asked themselves how we can make our cars better after our customers buy them. So my the Tesla I buy that I have right now gets better every month, every two months. You know, I get one major software update at least every eight weeks. Okay. And every time I get a software update, the car improves. It gets better. There's some new feature. Or I, get a, or I get a performance bump, okay? That is longer battery life, better takeoff time, whatever. Um, or they're doing something with the sensors and the telemetry on the car that they weren't doing before. How does Ford and GM do that? Well, number one, let's talk about the problems that, if, if a problem pops up with the car. Tesla knows there's a problem with a car, my car before I know there is, okay? And they know, and they know whether or not that problem is spread out across many, many, many vehicles, right? So say it's, it's a, it's a, would be like a recall item or something. They know that before the customers are complaining. Okay, so most of the time, customers are finding out there's an issue with their car from Tesla, unless it's something catastrophic, right? And Tesla's fixing it through a software update. 
So most of the time, most of the time, I don't even know that there was a problem. <coughs> Number two, Tesla is able doesn't improve their cars from one manufacturing year to the next, right? I worked in Tier One Automotive, and you know, and, and Ford was one of my customers. Actually, Ford and Nissan were. I worked with the product engineers at Ford and the product engineers at Nissan, and I know what their focus was. Their focus was always on next year, the next year's models that were coming out. And they were improved, they were fixing things that were wrong in last year's models. Well, Tesla's fixing things that are in the in the cars that are on the road. Ford was only fixing the things that either the National Traffic Safety Bureau told them they had to fix or things that enough customers complained about that they were going to have to do some tech note or recall and have you come into the dealer and, you know, and get it fixed. Tesla is looking for the problem actively. And the reason why is because they're a data company. Okay. So, and, and, and that makes the consumer experience different. So those quality metrics that we used to have was was based on the way Ford and Chrysler and GM build their cars, which is year to year. The car you drive off the lot is the car you're going to have, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to depreciate over time, right? It's going to get looser. It's going to make noises. It's not, the car's not going to improve, right, over time. It's going to get worse, and it's going to depreciate. And if I want the better version, I either got to hope there's a recall, a tech note, and so that I don't have to pay for the repair, or I buy a new car next year. That's part of that was what their business model was. Tesla's improving the vehicles they've already shipped. I mean, this is a really, really important distinction. All right, so Jeremiah Schultz says, and they do that because they're a data company, which is what we're trying to teach everyone to, do, to be, right? So Jeremiah Schultz says, obviously he didn't like my response. He said at Walker Reynolds, your quaint little anecdotes don't change the fact that more Teslas have been recalled than any other car in history. That is not true. Okay. There is a way to interpret the data. So if I look at the um, eight to 10 year window that Teslas have been manufactured, there is a way to interpret to do a statistical analysis where you can say there are more recalls per car produced in that in the um, in that eight to 10 year window than any car in history which is not true. It's in any car in history since those metrics were in place. But if we were to go back to when Ford first started manufacturing cars and General Motors first started manufacturing cars and Chrysler started, first started manufacturing cars and we applied that same standard, they, those, none of their cars would have ever shipped. Okay, so th what he said there is not true. He did a statistical analysis to, to uh, a very specific statistical analysis to say that. Okay. As to your moronic question, so I'm a moron now, a fool is born every day. So what he's saying now is that any client or anybody who drives a Tesla, who um, anybody who buys Teslas, I bought two. Okay. I mean, my experience with the Model 3 didn't keep me from buying the Model S. So I'm, I'm either an idiot, okay, but I could tell you there's nobody who rides in my car who's like, why did you buy this piece of shit? There's nobody who goes, you know, this thing sucks. Why did you buy this? Wait, this is a Tesla? No one does that. Everyone gets in the car and goes, this is a Tesla. Okay. Uh, my 
my son Jared drove the Model S for the first time this past weekend. Picked, you know, went to his his girlfriend's house, you know, and picked up his girlfriend and stuff. And she wasn't going. Oh my God, this is this is a piece of shit. I can't believe this is that. No, no one is underwhelmed when they ride in a Tesla for the first time. Everybody's asking this question when they ride in a Tesla. Why are why don't other car manufacturers do this stuff? Okay. Another important point, the way Tesla manufactures their cars, they're very simple, right? They, they basically build a modular body on top of a rock-solid electric powertrain, okay? So anyway, he says, as to your moronic question, a fool's born every day. You know, Barnum and Bailey said that there's a sucker born every minute. I don't disagree with you, but I don't believe it's fools who are buying Teslas. Um, he said, poor quality also doesn't stop fools from blowing money on BMWs, Audis, and Mercedes, whose values all plummeted right after purchase because of their horrible quality control. You have more money than sense, and that's okay. In fact, it's great for the charlatans selling you Chinese pot metal quality at luxury good prices. So what I would say is, and I, you know, I, I come on here and I sing the praises of Tesla, and so I, I'm totally fine with Jeremiah taking a shot at me here. Outside the ad hominem attack stuff, um, this is this is a flawed argument. Okay, it's a flawed argument. I would invite Jeremiah to come on the podcast. Let's let's have a debate about it. I'll I'll prep my argument. You prep your argument. Let's let's go ahead and debate Tesla. I suspect what will happen is the the Jeremiah's argument here at the top. Once I dig just a hair deeper. He's going to get incredibly frustrated, angry. He's going to yell. He's going to, you know, he's not going to be able to back up his position here. But don't don't take my my just my word for it here on the Tesla piece. So there was an article in Inside EVs um, last fall, so in September. Um, Michael Cantu for Inside EVs. You guys can look up this article. I'll have Josh put the link in the in the comment. I'm going to go ahead and read this. And, and I think Michael Cantu does a really good job of explaining some of the reasoning here, okay? So he says, most of us are familiar with Tesla's build quality issues, okay? And um, this has been debated for a number of years. In general, Tesla's build quality has improved over time, but it's still not very consistent. Some Teslas roll off the production line with zero to just a few issues, while others have a significant amount. Many are resolved before customer delivery, but not all the time. So this is an important point. Tesla has a, a big quality control checklist they go through before delivery is made uh, on the vehicle. Also remember, um, not all quality issues that, you, that a customer reports are build issues. Sometimes they are the paint got chipped while it was in transport. That kind of thing. Okay. Every automaker is guilty of quality issues, as he continues. But it seems to plague Tesla more than most. Keep in mind that the build quality issues on the outside, so interior and exterior, do not extend to the powertrain underneath. Tesla's battery packs and motors are known for their longevity. The video above was posted by a Tesla Model S Plaid owner who had just received delivery of his new and very fast electric vehicle. He loves a lot about the Plaid, but found several exterior issues. Number one, it was delivered a little dirty. 
Number two, there was a paint gouge on the camera housing located on the driver's side fender. Panel gap between the fender and the side skirt behind the driver's side tire. There was a pinhole in the paint on the driver's side door. Both the rear wheel well liners have poor fitment. That means they, they, they didn't seem to be they didn't seem to fit right. That is the plastic that goes over the window, uh, the, the wheel. Clear coat peeling on the driver's side quarter panel. Scratches on both taillights and paint gouge on the edge of the passenger door. So it sounds to me like this car was driven through a sandstorm. Okay, that's what it sounds like. So the, the rest of the article, he says, he took delivery of the Model S because he didn't want to wait a few months for another one. So here's my point. First off, that should tell you something. He Seeing those cosmetic issues didn't make him say, I don't want a Model S. And we have to ask the question, why? And the answer is because to that guy spending $130,000 in that Model S, that plaid, the car, the car isn't a, 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 a perfect um, off the lot, absolutely flawless with no problems whatsoever, you know, no cosmetic issues whatsoever, okay, because it wasn't transported in a bubble, okay? Um, to me, when I look at this, the only two issues I see that are like Tesla issues, you have the clear coat peeling on the driver's side quarter panel. That's obviously a paint booth problem. And you have um, the uh, the, real, the rear wheel well liners have poor fitment. Those are build issues, okay? And, and obviously, they can be fixed. Me, I would not have taken delivery of a car that's got clear coat peeling. All the other things I would have taken the delivery on. But the question we have to ask is, why does he take delivery anyway? And the answer is because they're just not that fucking important. That's why. Okay. So he took delivery of the Model S because he didn't want to wait a few months for another one. I imagine this would be frustrating, but some of the issues can be corrected at his local service center. Which, by the way, the way that you handle service with Tesla, I, in my opinion, is far superior to any other um, car manufacturer. But here's the money quote. There are normally two sides to this build quality argument. Some will say the defects are minimal and the owner should just enjoy one of the most advanced cars on the road, while others will say build quality issues like that shouldn't exist on a $130,000 luxury car or any brand new car regardless of the price. Well, I've worked in manufacturing long enough to know, and I've seen enough. You know, there, There's a reason that you have upper and lower spec limits on manufacturing items, on subassemblies and finished goods. There are reason that we have, there's a reason that you have upper and lower spec limits instead of a specification because perfection is not attainable. Okay. It, it isn't attainable, right? You have, there are many reasons, many things that go into a lack of perfection. Um, both sides of the argument have good points. But it comes down to what kind of person you are. The former, um, they're the type that will live with the defects because the performance and the tech the Plaid provides make up for it. The latter care less for numbers and tech and simply want great fit and finish on their brand new car. Here's my take on it. I used to sell Toyotas professionally, and, would, and it would have been impossible to deliver a Toyota to a customer in the above condition because most came flawless from the factory or close to it. Any flaws we found were always corrected before delivery. However, 
If I purchased the Model S Plaid and received it with similar flaws, I'd likely still take delivery and resolve the issues with my local service center, mostly because I enjoy driving the latest technology has to offer. Still, receiving a brand new vehicle with the above issues shouldn't happen. By the way, Eli, everyone at Tesla tells you it shouldn't happen. What you're really doing is whether you're investing in Tesla is a function of whether or not you believe in it and you're betting, you're basically betting on Tesla is whether or not you believe they're going to hammer out the, what are really quality defects in, you know, cosmetic quality defects, which I have not personally experienced in the two purchases I've made. I would also argue Jeremiah Schultz hasn't ever owned a Tesla. Okay, so, so I don't know. He's clearly not speaking from personal experience or I would argue he's not. Okay. But he feels perfectly comfortable insulting me and calling me a moron and a fool. I don't believe I'm a moron and a fool at all. Um, what I believe is, is that I'm making a bet. I, I've placed a bet on the right company. And I couldn't possibly be happier with that bet. I, I couldn't possibly be happier. Um, of all the vehicles I own, of all the vehicles we have, okay, and we have five vehicles in our house, the Tesla Model S is the one that everyone wants to drive. So if when somebody says, hey, can I drive the to the store? They're not saying, hey, can I drive the F-250? Or, hey, can I drive the brand new Hyundai Santa Cruz? Which, by the way, we have a brand new 2022 Santa Cruz. Or the truck, the Santa Fe, whatever, whichever one it is. The Santa Cruz. No one's saying, hey, dude, can I drive your brand new Hyundai Santa Cruz? No. It's, can I drive the Model S? Now that legacy automakers are producing or about to produce competitive electric vehicles, Tesla should improve its build quality issues at a more rapid pace or risk losing customers that prefer brands with superior fit and finish. What's your opinion? Please comment below. So my point to Jeremiah Schultz here is this. The question that you really should be asking, which was he called my question moronic, it's the same question that uh, is posed by Michael Cantu from Inside Electric Vehicles magazine. Okay, it's the same question. The question we should be asking is, well, why doesn't that affect, why does that keep some customers from buying? And how many people return their Teslas for the quality issues? The answer is basically no one. And why is that? And this is the most important part. People who buy Teslas get comfortable with the idea that this car is going to get better over time. It's going to get better. It's going to improve through software updates. And, and if I need to take it to the service center, which I never have, neither of my vehicles have had to go to the service center. Uh, that's not true. I scuffed a wheel. I hit a curb and I, and I bought a new wheel and replaced it. And I, it had to go to the service center. And that was a great experience, by the way. Um, but the question you really should be asking is, does all the things that that customer listed there, do they really matter if Tesla is the only company that's offering a fundamental change in that vehicle over time? I have a better car after I buy it. All right. Um, that's it for the questions this week. I'm at 55 minutes. Unbelievable. I really thought I was going to get, um, I was going to be able to do this in 40 minutes. I have a couple of questions before we, we drop off here. Um, I would love for you guys in this specific podcast right here, if you could, if you have any questions you want me to answer, please put them not in the 
in this chat, in, not in the um, live chat, but down below is a comment. Next week when I do the podcast, I'm going to select three questions from the comments down below to answer in that podcast. It'll be re- and, I, 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 and this is something I want to get accustomed to doing. I, I want, and the reason why is, or I'll answer, I'll answer one, two, three, so up to three. Um, I want to get accustomed to, you know, answering questions from the people who are actually watching and listening to the podcast uh, as well. Because a lot, most of the questions that I'm pulling out, we're generally pulling those from Discord. Most of the questions that we're answering are generally from Discord. But I want, I want to get in the habit of it answering at least one up to three that uh, are from um, the podcast. All right. With that, um, we're going to call it a day. Thank you guys for watching, and I'll see you in the next one.